The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. So, I mean, I gotta ask, since you just brought it up, man, like four months later. Like, like, dude, what what the hell happened? So we did this, uh, we were supporting a conventional company, probably a company minus, that went into Wardak province. So like way up into the hills in the mountains where anytime we went there, we got in a fight. There was no established presence. This unit wanted to go in and just find out where the enemy was basically like engage and, and establish a bit more of a foothold. So we infilled them and actually me and this guy, JT, who I was just talking about, we went to our battalion commander and said, we think this is a really bad idea. Like the whole scheme maneuver, we think this is bad. We should not do this op. But our battalion commander went to West Point with the ground commander and they were tight. And I don't like in hindsight, I don't think he was wrong to do this, but at the time it just seemed a bit reckless. So we put our best crews together for the infill and the exfill. The infill was quiet. We infilled these guys, nothing really happened. Um, it was on the exfill. So we took a couple Chinooks with us as two Apaches escorting them in. We air exfilled out half of the folks, and then there was the remaining folks did a ground exfil. And there was only one road in and out of this valley. Like, could not have been more advantageous to an enemy force. And it was all daytime, actually. So I know you guys operated a lot at night. This was all daytime. Damn. So when we flew was this, in, was this a conventional? Was this conventional, conventional force? Conventional force. Um, 101st. 101st. And when we went in, we were taking RPG like airburst fire mm-hmm. from the ridge line before we even got to the LC, Jeez. which was rare for this to happen. So it was like coming up in between aircraft for us. Um, so we continued on. We we air exfilled these guys out, and that part wasn't too bad, actually. The, the enemy was clearly waiting for the ground exfil. So we were providing convoy security, and typically how we would do that, you got a long convoy. We'd usually say, hey, the first vehicle, one aircraft is going to stay in front of it, the second aircraft's going to start at the first vehicle and stay with the com, like just stay over top of the convoy as a presence. And so somebody's kind of scouting out ahead of the yep. route, to try to see if there's anything in place there or any enemy positions. And they must have only been moving for like 20 minutes. And it was just Apaches on station. Our battalion commander was in a Blackhawk, a command and control Blackhawk that was like a ridge line over to coordinate for air exfil and any medevac. Uh, But it was really just our two Apaches there. And they came, the ground convoy kind of approached a a bit of an overpass over this little road. And, And although mountainous, there was a lot of greenery in the valley floor, like more than I think a lot of Americans expect if you haven't been over there. 
Um, so a lot of area for concealment at least. And when one of the vehicles kind of approached this area, uh, the, one of the gunners just took an RPG to the chest and it was kind of the initiation of pretty, pretty well oiled ambush on this ground unit. So it was mayhem on the radios. And one of the things that when, when I talk to pilots, this comes up a lot because I, I just don't know the experience on the ground, but we're monitoring like four radios at any given time, air to air, air to ground, like air to ground, ground force commander, air, air to JTAC. Um, so we're always managing radios, but when something really kicks off and people's voice change, their voices kind of change when the intensity um, increases, it's yeah, noticeable. For sure. Air. And it was insanity on the radios, like when this went off. So you've got a major somewhere in the convoy who's not actually in charge, but wants to be because he's the senior ranking guy. But really, there's oh. a leader who's the designated ground force commander. And then there's a JTAC who's trying to call us in. And it was just complete chaos. And we could not, could not find the enemy on the ground. So it was daytime. Really? So we were looking naked eye. We'd switch to FLIR, which is usually a really good way to see him with thermal imaging. Could not see him. And this was the three other best guys that I could put on the on the flight were there. One of them flies AH-6s in 160th today. He's like a phenomenal pilot. Um, we could not see these guys. And the ground guys were just getting lit up. And we're trying to coordinate for a medevac, like we had to go find an LZ. But we just couldn't put any rounds down because we couldn't see the enemy. So this guy, JT, and the other aircraft finally just said, hey, I think we need to go down low and draw fire away from these guys until they can break contact. Like, I'm not saying you guys got to go do it, but I just want to ask, is everybody okay doing this? And, you know, everybody is like, of course, we're going to go do this. So we set up, instead of being separated, we went into more of like a traditional uh, front and back kind of a wingman formation that you might see in, in Top Gun or something like that. And, and so we've trained on this. So we come in and we fly probably, I don't know, 50 feet above these guys a few times. We were the trail aircraft. And JT in front of us goes, goes through on the first pass. Nothing happens. As we come through, we get this buffeting. We, we could feel this buffeting that we hadn't felt before. We, we didn't know it at the time, but we had been hit by small arms fire like kind of across our, our belly. And then as we're pulling up and, and moving to the right, we look out our, our left-hand side and this RPG warhead is just coasting past us. Not far at all. I feel like anytime I tell the story, it's closer, but it was like an Acme rocket in Wiley Coyote or something. Like we could see the back of it. I talked about this with, with the guy who was in my back seat after we landed. We were like, did you see that? He's like, I, of course I saw that. <laughs> so we just thought like, if this thing air bursts, we're done. Like we're just going to be blown out of the sky. So for me, this, I've been in, in other scenarios that I feel like were near death, but this was the closest that I, I really felt like I had gotten to this. And I could, you know, for me, it was a, a changing event in my life. So we, we continued on. And we did these these passes until we could get eyes on, and then we started putting 30 millimeter down on on some of the, the enemy on the ground. We coordinated a medevac to come in, and we flew for probably 10 hours that day, which is rare. Usually, you can only fly for eight in the daytime, 
before you have to get approvals from you know general officers and they approved us to keep flying until these guys were way out of that valley um, but we were like actively engaged several times we went winchester several times um, wow. had to go and, and refuel probably an hour away and we'd hand off to another team so we were prepared for it but man they got the jump on us that day for sure and we did some damage but you know, it, like this is what we had expected to happen. And really there were very few U.S. casualties in the end. It was more chaos than getting out of that kill zone. Well, I mean, it took everyone together to get out of that for sure. Yeah. And one without the other wouldn't have been what happened at the end. What was your estimation of enemy personnel, do you think, if you had to throw a number on it? I know it's hard to do that, but. I don't know. Maybe it, it had to have been small, probably like 20 to 25. You know, it wasn't a huge contingent and, and they were able to stay concealed incredibly well. Yeah, um, that's. We, so the way my mind's working, the sniper side of me. So what time of day was this ish? Probably like mid afternoon, late. Early afternoon. So uh, time of year, was it warm at this point? October. Yeah, it was warm warmer than expected especially given so, the elevation i wonder with the being in a valley the grass the humidity the sunlight the body warmth like mixing in with this this mixture of, of, of literally humidity in that grass might have been hard for you to pick them out in, in that realm especially if there was any water nearby yeah i, I think people have this impression that thermal can see anything and it's really yeah. hard to pick stuff out at, at certain yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, They're I mean, that's, and we, we all know this, how it goes there. I mean, that's those guys going into war and that place is famously known to be incredibly dangerous. And again, you've got a bunch of local fighters or people that know the ground, they know the area, they, you know, it'd be like somebody coming and attacking you in your backyard. Yeah. You know, Truly. It's, it's just, there's just, they have all the advantage. They have all the time to set up. They have, like I said, they have all the advantage. So it's it's incredibly difficult, and especially in a place and like I that. Jesus Christ. That, that guy, JT, when I interviewed him on this show a couple of years ago, um, he, you know, he had four deployments, all flying Apaches. And I asked him, hey, what was the worst op you ever went on? And it was that day. So to me, wow. It meant a lot. Like, I mean, for me, it was for sure the worst day that I was on, but for him to have, you know, so many hours and like of all the hours he flew, the 10 worst were that day. Um, like that's how I felt about it. And it sounds like he did too. That's crazy, man. It's crazy. So you, you get back safely at the end of that, that crazy day. I mean, I'm imagining you, you know, taking the helmet off and getting out of the cockpit. Did you, did you check the bird out? We did, yeah. So the the comedic element of this was we had to refuel in route back home. So my backseater was like, "Hey, why don't you hop out, take a leak, and see if we got any holes down there?" So I was like, "Sounds good." So I hop out, and we did a, a hot refuel. So the aircraft is still running. So like pressure's mm -hmm. moving, everything's still on. Um, I check it out, and like nothing, man. Looks good. We get back to our, <laughs> our actual base. We shut down. There's no longer any pressure pushing through the system. And we hop out and there's like oil pouring out of this aircraft. There's nothing like keeping it going anymore. It's just like 
seep like just pouring out Pooling. of these holes. So, <laughs> so he gets out, he's like, no holes? Way to go, sir. What the fuck? <laughs> we have flown this whole so what way. Kind of, yes. What kind of protection do these things have? Like you said, the the you're, you, you were talking about earlier, you mentioned that you know you guys have ballistic glass or ballistics around yeah. the, the pilots what other protection are built into these things i mean you're 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 driving or you're flying around in a freaking just a battle vehicle what sort of protections and redundancies are built into these aircraft to to prevent you know some fucking errant rounds taking them down it it is supposed to be able to take a beating and it has like operation anaconda early in the war in Afghanistan, like they were getting hit with RPGs and depending on where you get hit, you can sustain it. But I also knew a guy in 03 who took a round through the, the ballistic cockpit cover in his neck and he, he lived, oh. but I mean, it went through the cockpit into his, um, into his body. So you just never know. But the one thing that did work <laughs> as advertised, they pulled a small arms round out of our fuel cell. So we had this rubber fuel cell, that's self-sealing. Uh, so the round went in and sealed in there before it could get to the fuel scent, the to the fuel itself. And you know, we had learned about this over time, and I just didn't know if it was true, but that thing worked that day. <laughs> You're just like, Damn tell them man. this, they'll be fine. Just- yeah. Wow. That's so, crazy. That deployment ends, you know, you get back. Um, is this is this your first and last combat deployment? That was, yeah, with the Army. So I ended up doing one right. with the agency, but a very different experience, as you yeah. can imagine. Um, so that, that was what, in the Army. Okay. That's definitely what I was trying so, to segue into without ending your Army career short. Yeah, man. For our listeners out there, the, the other cool side of your life post-mill is uh, was the Central Intelligence Agency, man. So where'd that little birdie get in your brain, man? I mean, you said earlier in the conversation, your dad in the political sphere – you know, work at embassies and, you know, for listeners out there, I was part of the, the agency too for a bit. So we actually share a, for a mutual friend and compadre that, uh, ironically, which is crazy. Uh, he reconnected me with this guy after years. So, um, was it from the state department time with your dad? That was just kind of the question mark there. Yeah. I, I think for me, that's something I always wanted to do. And like a lot of guys, I got out of the army and it was like, I'm going to make a clean break, go do something normal. Three months into that normalcy, I hated it. I was like, how do I get back into some kind of mission, but not the military side? And right. again, I'd been married to my wife uh, for several years at that point. So she knew me in this life and I, I just wanted to be in the agency. So I, I applied several times and it is the blackest of black boxes to get into that place um (laughs) finally you know got some notification back and took probably about a year for me from the time that i got notified until i was in the door and i was beyond excited to get into that world and it was the thing what really killed me is i got out in 09 and these guys who i had just been deployed with went back in 2010 to Afghanistan. And I was like, I'm sitting here at a barbecue, you know, like I've got the easiest life sitting at a desk and they're over there doing that. And I don't like, I just think we're not designed for that, at least at that age in our lives to watch other people go through that. So I I just wanted to get back into it. And the agency was my way to do it. But I, I guess I should say Jason to that question. There were some great stories I had growing up from my dad 
where like the agency would occasionally they'll go and pitch somebody like for to be an asset and sometimes it's just out of nowhere maybe this will work the guys leaving town like this is our only chance and i do remember like a good friend of my dad's was incredibly high up in the agency. I just didn't know it until I got there. Like a conference room is named after him for the area that he worked in. <laughs> oh, damn. Once I got in um, to know that this is this guy who like used to come over and have, have scotch or whatever at our house. Um, so my dad was the number two at this one embassy at the time, the political guy. So he's not involved in the intel stuff, but he's friends with the intel people. And the ambassador has to leave for a week or something. And when the ambassador is gone, they decide to pitch somebody. And it's a high-profile pitch. If it gets turned down, it's like, could be disruptive on the international scene that we would do something like this. And they decide to do it when the ambassador is not in town. So it doesn't look bad for the AMBO. But then my dad is the, the next one in line. So right before they pitch him, this guy comes in and tells my dad, hey, uh, hey Ed, something's going to go down in a little bit. You might get notified if it doesn't go okay. <laughs> My dad's like, God damn it. You had to do this this week when when I'm the one like stuck with the yep. bag. I'm the and, fall guy. Yeah. So he's the fall guy. It doesn't go well. Nothing too bad happens as a result. But uh, like I, st- I now have a, a very good appreciation from being on the other side of what this must have been to my dad receiving it. Like, you don't want to report bad news back to DC. And he was the one holding the bag. So like, these are the stories I would grow up with around the house. You know, I'd hear enough of them. <laughs> and so I was always like, God, that would be fun to go do. I, I'm, it's, it's, so you said you applied how many times before you really got any positive feedback? At least five or six. See, that's so crazy just because of your – you have a super interesting background that you would think would play really well. You know how it is. They love – one of the first things that they always ask, hey, what, what do you have any time overseas? You growing up in that situation and you having that sort of unique aspect of what your dad did and in, in spending so much time living overseas, being a military officer, having combat, I would have thought that they'd been falling over themselves to talk to you. Like it's so crazy. Yeah, yeah, I could see I could see the hesitation at least or the duration of that process because you have lived in so many different places. You have made so many different contacts. You know what I'm saying? Because like and potentially then the military, that, yeah. Because that's a fucking long ass process on an SF eighty six and all everyone you fucking know <laughs> yeah. at every yeah. single spot, yeah. you gotta list ten people. And their names, like, fuck, I don't remember that girl's name, you know? And then they've got to contact all of these people to make sure you're not potentially working for the other side. So they're probably just like, oh, fuck, this guy's persistent. You know, we finally got to fall through with this. Like, he's not giving up. So (laughs) That's one thing I could – you're 100% right there. I could definitely see them like, oh, man, this guy's got some fucking – we're going to have to deal with all this guy's shit from the past. Like, I could see it taking a little bit longer. But, the yeah, but the fact that they didn't – rolled you up instantly is surprising to me. I didn't have a language. Like I, there were a lot of things that I didn't have. Yeah. That are that, a that's bit. why I asked you that before. Cause I thought I, I would have thought that you had something. No, sadly, no. <laughs> so walk us through it, brother. You, you get that notification randomly. Yeah, man, <laughs> that I, I will say that that recruiting process is a long one and it is. Yeah. It, as people would expect, very quiet, 
um, deliberate as, as much as it can be. You're not talking to anyone about it. Obviously I tell my wife, yep. so she's tracking, but everything is, is quiet and you have no idea where you stand. Where, at where were you living at the time? We were in DC. So part of, Oh, okay. Well, got that out, makes we it easy. Living, yeah. We were in North Carolina, but I, Basically, what I said is, I don't know how I'm getting back into the mission, but we're going to the epicenter of it all, which to me was DC. So we went back yeah, to DC. 100%. Um, and I just wanted to be close to whatever it was that I could hook myself onto. So, yeah, it was convenient to be there at the time when I'm going through that process. Um, once, you know, the, you're, you're in the dark for a lot of it. You go through a whole bunch of questions, scenarios. You don't know what the right answers are. You have no idea who these people are you're talking to. Nobody really identifies themselves, which is very consistent with the way that the farm goes later. Um, once you find out you're in, um, make it through the polygraph, which is one of the worst several hours of your life. Once you get through all that and you're in, you feel like, God damn, this is great. Until you realize, like, I still got to go to the farm and I have to make it through that. <laughs> and then that's hanging over your head for a while. But I will say once I got in, I, I remember you guys know what it's like driving on a military base, right? Like you got to go 15 miles an hour and there's an MP there or whatever. And that was my experience. So the first time I drive onto the headquarters compound there, that's how I felt. I was like, there's, pe there's snipers everywhere probably watching me because that's how you think of the agency. And What's I will up, Jack say- Ryan? They got a solid perimeter to get in. But uh, I remember driving through and there's a jet in the parking lot, like a jet on display. Have you guys been been to yep. the compound? No. Yeah. Yep. So and they make the you park, they make you park a fucking quarter mile away from that big ass parking I'm lot, man. Like, where's the fucking trolley at, man? Like, come on. And it's 98 degrees out. Like, all right, I'm the new guy. Out there. But I just remember thinking, <laughs> this is badass. There's a jet from the Cold War in the parking lot that I could just go walk up to. There's like a piece of the Berlin wall. There's those tank barricades that were on the beaches in Normandy, like sitting right here. So I, I was immediately just like, this is badass. And then the class that I got to meet, like we, we have the mutual friend who just impressed the hell out of me. Um, backgrounds from all over, tenured professors at Ivy League schools, um, people who are on like the astronaut program, White dudes who look like us, who spoke native Mandarin, just, I was beyond impressed with these guys. And, and there were a bunch of former military, but not a ton, you know, all walks of life. Uh, and the guys who were former military, like jet pilots, Marines, all kinds of stuff, man. So I was very humbled to be in that group and super grateful to have just gotten my foot in the door. Um, and then, and then what happens is once you get in there, you spend, they, they bring people right out of college. And if you come right out of college, you got to do a couple years working desk jobs at headquarters, which is one of the worst things you ever want to do. <laughs> nobody, that would suck. you just want to get to the field. It's like the military, like nobody wants to work in the talk, but somebody has got to do it. Right. So people who are 22 need to learn how to write, you know, and just, mature professionally. So they got to spend a couple years for people who have prior work experience. You do like six months, um, at a desk job and then you go to the farm for, for the duration of the farm, which is a long time. And that is obviously you can't say too much about it, but it's a, I would say it's a 
very big mind game. And there's not a big attrition rate there. Again, like I think they do a good job of, of getting the right people in the pipeline. Like maybe you'll lose 10 to 15%. But you never know where you stand in that thing. And they oh, do wow, cut really? at the midway point and at the end. And it's a long process. And all of a sudden, like somebody's just gone. Um, and to lose somebody at the very end is super hard. Uh, we lost somebody who we had been with the whole time, like in our small group. And we had no idea. And they just told us, hey, this dude, all along, he was having trouble and never said anything about it. And, and you go and do ops and make a fool of yourself. Um, you run these um, surveillance detection routes and sometimes you're good, sometimes <laughs> you're not. You go and you're doing these mock um, asset meetings and there are all these things you got to remember and do and you're going to mess stuff up and you come back and probably like you guys after an op or like we did after we flew, like you come back and you just put your cards on the table. Hey, I did this and it sucked. What'd you guys do? What'd you learn? Is there a place that you found that works? Like, should I do an op in this area? This dude never said any of that. And we just didn't wow. realize it. And it was one of those learning things. Like he just didn't ask for help. And in the end, it, it bit him. So we kind of lost him at the end. Well, I mean, you- I, I, I don't know if you remember from our discussions that, but I, you know, I had worked specifically when I was with the agency, I was specifically working with the guys coming up from the farm, doing their surveillance detection and all that stuff. And I saw, I mean, not very often, but we saw some crazy wazoo stuff before, like, what is this yes. guy doing? And then we would sit down with the instructors from the farm who would brief us about, Hey, this guy's SDR or whatever the case, whatever they were doing. And, and, um, yep. I always felt like they were very protective of the students, you know, I guess rightly so. But there was a couple times when some people did some silly stuff and they were just like, yeah, we're going to have a talk with them later, you know, And they do. I will say one of the things that they do really well is they do not pull punches in that place. Like it is very hard love, a hard love environment. And even where I was at on the conventional side of the army was not that way. There was still some, some softness built in to the eval cycles and all that. But there, if you screwed something up, like you were going to know about it. And, and the expectation is because you, you operate independently so often, I mean, you know, I know certainly for you, Jason, like you were protecting us downrange. So you were there for us in a war zone. When we're operating in a normal place, you're on your own for hours and you're meeting with somebody and it's your responsibility to be honest about what happens. And if you screw something up, you got to tell people. So if, if they feel like during training that you're not owning up to something that went wrong, they are going to destroy you because they can't afford to have you kind of on your own making something up about Intel or, or an op that went sideways that could endanger yeah. an asset or somebody else in the team. Yeah. That makes total sense the way you described that. Yeah. I know you can't say like how long directly this was, man, but was there a point in there like most courses where you started feeling, all right, I'm starting to get this or was every day like, fuck man. <laughs> I, I truly didn't feel comfortable right up until the end. Like when they told me I made it, I was like, Whoa, surprise now in hindsight that probably wasn't realistic like i think i did just fine going through it i made my share of errors like anybody but i I think looking back i was probably on a good side 
we had, I had a Marine colonel in my small group that started out that dropped out two months in. Like for him, he was like, I'm just not playing this game. I'm too old to play this game. And he was a yeah. Marsoc, Marsoc guy. And I was like, I didn't even know Marines quit anything, even if it's a game. But I could like, looking back now, it is, it's, it's a bit of a game that you got to Im- immerse yourself in to get through. Um, it, it, it's hard for the war fighting types because I'm sure it's so academically heavy and it's, it's, I think especially Marines are so used to using being in teams, you know, six yeah. man teams, platoons, you know, sticks, chocks. And then now you're a one man, two man show that, that can be, that can be hard, man. Yeah. It, it is solo all the way. So like throughout definite doubts along the way, but th- that was one of those places. And I've talked to a lot of guys now on the show and I, I've heard you guys say it too. Like they were going to have to pry me out of that place. Like my dead body. I, there was no way I was self-selecting yep. out and they try to play mind games with you to get you to leave. Um, but yeah, there was no way I was doing that in that place. So after you, you obviously you successfully complete the program and what's, what's the next step for, for you after that? Do they, is it sort of uh, some more training someplace? Do they, is that a sort of, Hey, we're going to send you someplace else to mark time for a little while for some paperwork or do you get, do you get orders someplace right out of the box? It's, you, you get your follow on right out of the box. So there's this pretty cool ceremony at the end where you figure out what region of the world you're going to go work on or what issue set you're going to work on. It's like, if you go to the counterterrorism center, they'll tell you, Hey, Ryan, you're going to this place and you're going to go to this station or you're going to work this desk job and then go get this language and you got to go get this additional training. Um, they are really good about that. And they've had a long time with you waiting. So they know exactly where you need to pipeline to get out to. So you find out pretty quickly. For me, I had to go get language training. So I picked up French um, and then went out to my first assignment. Um, and I worked the desk for a little bit just because of where I ended up going. There were higher political stakes, like international geopolitical stakes. So they really wanted you to be super familiar with everything that was going on there before they just drop a new person in. Almost be yeah. a fly on the wall and just kind of take it all in. Yeah. So some oh, places cool. though, they need you there like tomorrow and they will kick people out the next week. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. Um, I do remember like one of my buddies, uh, we went through the training together and I got this Kush assignment and he, uh, he didn't want a Kush assignment. A lot of guys don't. Um, a lot of guys who hadn't been in the military they, and even guys who did, they want to go to the like, really austere environments. And he did. Because they don't know better. They don't like, but, but that is yeah. where the thing is you, you guys know this, but for, for listeners, like if you're in, in some big metropolitan European city, y- your job when you're over there is to recruit sources. And it's not easy to encourage some other person to hang out with you on the weekend when you're in some awesome city and there's like a million things to do. When you're in the middle of nowhere in Africa, you're kind of a big deal if you're an American diplomat. You've got like a lot of alcohol 
and a lot of money <laughs> to spend. So it's a lot easier to go and find these people. So anyway, like you want to go and cut your teeth in those places a lot of the time. So this dude, I remember he went, got assigned to this one area, talked to some of the senior folks. And I met him after this meeting, like right after he came out of this meeting and he goes, all right, man, I got my first assignment. Do you know where, and he, he listed off a capital city to me. He's like, do you know where this is? Cause I don't know. And that's where they're sending me. <laughs> he, he, did, was, he did hearing the name of the capital city. He didn't know where it was. Yes, and I will tell you guys the name after we, we hit a uh, stop on this thing, but uh, it's not one that comes to mind for most people. And he's like, sure, I'll go there. You know, like whatever you guys want me to go do. And they've got like two paved streets in the whole town. So he went to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and we ended up going, my family and I, to this like Cush assignment um, where I wanted to end up going. And so I got to go where I wanted to go. But that's um, awesome. Yeah. So that's kind of what happens after, right after you come out of the gates. So you, you as a army guy, you know, pilot and now a CEO, uh, were you more proud or was it equal in different ways? I mean, this is obviously a progression in your career in life and, and age, you know, which do you think sticks out to you more, I guess, in, in experience and, and I don't know, pride looking back your agency time or army time. I think it's hard to discount the, the experience in combat. Like there's very hard to find something else that's like that and how close you get to people. Yeah. And I felt close to these guys that I went through the farm with, um, you know, people I was in station with, but it's not the same as nearly dying with someone, you know, like, I don't know what it is that makes it so tight, but it's something else. Um, I was a better fit, I think for the agency, like that was more like I had just studied international relations for so long. I grew up overseas. I just love that environment. And I, w I was good at that. And there were a lot of carryovers from the army that helped me there. So I, I think I associate more with that, but I am, I'm probably more proud and closer to the people that I serve with in the military, just because of yep. how crazy things get when you're downrange. Yeah, that makes sense, man. How many years did you end up doing it? With the eight years there, yeah. At the oh, agency. damn! So wow. a couple overseas to how long? DC, eight years. It's a good number, and brother. What, so, uh, what's is there something that you can talk about that's like uh, big that stood out during your time? Like one of the like an oh shit moment? Yeah, I mean, and especially you know this, Patrick, from watching and surveilling other people. And obviously, Jason, you've seen this stuff uh, in the war zones, but one of the greatest fears that you have is when you're going to meet an asset is like, you want to make sure you do not have surveillance on you. And so like, for I don't know if this is confusing for folks, yep. but you're, you're in another country, you're meeting with a human source who's risking probably everything, their, their lives, yep. their family's lives, everything to meet with you. And when you go meet with them, you cannot bring surveillance, which is like the local government or a terrorist organization, they cannot be following you to that meeting because they don't really want you. They want that person you're meeting with. So your greatest fear is bringing surveillance to a meeting. So yep. most guys who you talk to will say, you want to see surveillance, like it's better if you see surveillance and can then break off and go do something else and not go to the meeting. When you don't have surveillance, it's your best guess. Like maybe you missed it. 
like in the back of your mind, there's this little voice that's like, did you see it? Are you sure you're clear? Like you're black, you're ready to go. Um, and you, you know, you do your best to apply the training and you learn over time, like what to pick up on, but man, that's a huge fear. So I will say every time I went to on an op, I, I never overcame that. And I've heard the only other thing that I've heard, you know, like I'd be interested if you guys experienced this on the ground from some other perspective, but any naval aviator I've talked to will say this about landing on an aircraft carrier. Like it never <laughs> got easy. It's always a crapshoot. And, and that's how I felt going into every op. So wow. to me, like I, I always had that pucker factor. There were times where I was flying in an aircraft I could not believe I was in, or I was picked up in an aircraft that landed in a place like completely blacked out without a runway and a dude who wasn't wearing night vision goggles and landed with one flashlight like click and was able to bring this thing in like a foreign partner force that was able to do this. Um, carrying money around in a briefcase like more money than I'll ever have in my life crossing a border that I should not be crossing. Um, those things like will forever stick with me. And part of the reason that uh, like I started combat story to begin with was those stories that you hear about, like when you're sitting at the chow hall in the military or when we're sitting in a station after hours, it's those ones that like come back and, you know, one day I hope I, I'll be able to talk more about some of these ops and I hate not being able to share more, but you guys know, you know, a couple times I'd go out on ops and <laughs> you got to have a reason to be in a place at any given time. Like it's got to look like you're supposed to be there. And yep. there were a couple times I, I'd go in and get massages because <laughs> that was like the only thing that I could do to be in that area. So I would roll into a meeting. Greet <laughs> Up. Like I, like the most oiled up dude you have ever seen in your life, and and I'm sure the asset was like, what the hell is this American? Like, yeah, why is it every time we meet you're just greasy, you're lubed up? Um, that that's hilarious because in a town called Solomonia, we used to do AFAMs. You know, we used to just go drive around, especially when you're new to an area, and just go get used to it. And one part of town had a massage parlor, and I did, and it was fucking amazing. And it wasn't just once or a few times. I definitely did it about ten times over the course of my couple of years there, and it was. So would, uh, would you call the uh, would you call the massage happy or sad at the end? Uh, they definitely tried to be happy, and I was just like, nah, not having it. I'm like looking in the corners for cameras. No, no. <laughs> Hands to yourself, bad woman. It was fun. You got to write everything up that you do afterwards. So like writing up my, get my receipts for this and Hey, you know, I spent X amount of uncle Sam's money. Getting the the massage. Um, Thank you, uncle Sam. That's right. You know, we had, you know, we did a debrief once. I did a very long debrief with a guy, um, through, through a translator, which is not uncommon, but in this case, I was speaking one language. This guy was translating it into another. And then uh, there was just no English in the room. Like I, I wasn't speaking English to the translator. I was speaking French. Oh, he was translating into something else. And then, so the telephone game of this just, I mean, it sounds really lame after you've been in the military to say it, but like, these are the things that just wear you down over time. Like your mind just gets 
sloppy and taking notes and, and things you got to remember because you can't have notes on you when you, in case somebody stops you, like you can't have all this stuff written down. So trying to make sure I'm getting the right stuff and my French isn't great. And like they're translating into some other language that nobody else knows. And like, are we really getting the right stuff? Yeah. Uh, it's always, it's always a concern is, is the translator saying exactly what you yeah. want him to say? Like what, what's his spin on this? That, Yeah. That's just just from English to whatever is always yeah. a concern, you know. Yep. And Jesus. I will say, Jason, one one of the times when I was in the war zone, we had our GRS guys, and we went out to lunch, and, and it wasn't enough. We just went to lunch with these guys, me, another CO, and and two GRS dudes. And as we were leaving lunch, we're getting in the car, and I'm riding in the back seat, and I was like, "Hey, I had my eyes on these people, um, kind of down the way." We start driving off and I, I was looking behind us because I had no rear view mirrors. There's nothing else I could see out of. So I was just looking behind and and I told these guys as we got in the car, I was like, I'm pretty sure these dudes are going to be following us. They're like, nah, we know this place. Nothing's happening. Sure as shit. 20 minutes later, these guys are with us. We go through a roundabout. They stay with us in this roundabout. <laughs> like oh, man. clearly they're staying Obvious. with us. Um, so we we had some local national support that we were able to call in and wrap these dudes up behind us. But in a war zone, you don't know who it is. Like, is it government? Is it terrorists? So to me, like this is the first time I was like on the ground rolling around, not like a Marine had been before, like you guys. So my pucker factor was through the roof, dude. Through the <laughs> roof. Got like GRS guys all kitted out with their weapons and it's like we got terrorists behind us. Holy shit! And and at first they were like, "We don't believe you, man. We know this place." And eventually, they're like, "We got this. You just stay put." And it was awesome watching them like click into gear. Like this is what we do. They're making phone calls. It was super cool to see that in action, like with my own two eyes for once. And I'm sure they always they want to see something happen too. I think they get bored just driving around. They want to see some action. We we get bored, brother, but. Especially in in Baghdad and Iraq at that time where I was at GRS, and especially being in Iraq in 03 and 04, and then coming back in 2012 and 13, I, I saw true carnage. So, and my graduating class were the guys from 13 Hours. So the surviving guy, guy, uh, one of the seals who came in on crutches with a scar from his hand, didn't really work all the way up his arm down his chest, got blown off one of the buildings. Uh, literally told us and I never forgot the words. He's like, you guys are truly alone. He's like, you're usually in pairs. He's like, it's on you to, to not drink. Like we all do as much in PT um, and train. He's like, much. shit hits the fucking fan. You don't have a big QRF dude. If any, like you, you better fucking know your, your boy that you're in that fucking car with. So the way they drove that home, and especially at that time, I watched it be very passive in early 2013 to where we're just going out to the mall in Baghdad, which is a fucking mind fuck to me. And then quickly within that same year, Dash, ISIS, Ishul stood up very quickly and started closing in on the city. And it changed to where, Every checkpoint was potentially run by Hezbollah to, uh, I mean, you didn't know who was running the checkpoints, man. Yeah, so man. we've heard horror stories and it's just like, dude, so you're in defense of you for our listeners out there, you know, that one worry of 
if you're, you're being followed, you're being tracked at a meeting. There are so many variables that you can't control. There's so many corners to a room. It's a pie of it's three dimensional time, place. And for the most part, you're, you're a gringo, you're a white boy in a car trying to blend in, yeah. in a country where it's probably a darker skinned country. You're fucking sticking out. So, and those are locals that have grown up there and they know everything. And there's a guy in the corner that's been sitting there for 30 years. You know what I'm saying? So it's, dude, I got you, man. And that's the professionalism in you to try to do the best in every, everything. So I feel your, your pain on that. And yeah, man. I've tried to put myself in your guys' shoes multiple times and you guys have, it was a hard job, you know, and dude, every one of those dudes was, I felt like they were corrupt, man. So I, I got to say, this one, what's up, Patrick? Uh, no, I, I, what'd you say, Jason? You said you felt like who just, was corrupt? All of them. I mean, I just felt like they sometimes would just <laughs> rattle off things just to be rattling off things to get that next paycheck the next month, man. So the source, some, yeah. The source, yeah, yeah. And you probably have a yeah, lot some, more. Yes, I mean, potentially, yeah, for sure. I would think that you know, especially when they're, you know, Ryan was just talking about crossing borders with cases of money. You know, when these people are given information and they're getting these big paydays, you know, they're sort of incentivized to come up with some other shit, you know? So. Oh man. And I, I should say you had mentioned um, just in case anybody I know watches this. So I was a collection management officer. I was a CMO, not a CO specifically. So I went through the same farm training at the time. We all went through that. My job was slightly different where I was trained to go and, and recruit and handle and do all that. But I had this kind of additional role where it's, it's hard to explain to people who haven't been in inside, but it's kind of like an editor at a newspaper where if a CEO comes back from a meeting, they have to write up the intel that goes out to the community, the mill, White House, National Security Council, whoever's reading it, depending on what the topic is. And so you've kind of got these CEOs who are like journalists who are bringing a report back. And then there's an editor, which is what my role was. So I had to understand the people who were going to read this Intel report in DC or wherever in the world. Um, what is it exactly they need to know? What do we need to put first? Like, how do we need to write this? How do we need to protect this source? And the CEOs can do a lot of that, but they're focused on collecting the Intel and like really understanding the trade craft. So a lot of this was on me to, to understand like how do we package this and get it out and hmm. i'm supposed to understand what those the consumers of the intel need so when one of the ceos is about to go meet an asset the they would often come to us and, and they'd say like hey what does dc need to know from this meeting and it was my job to say if you can only ask two questions because he had to get out on his lunch break and he's only got 15 minutes you need to ask these two questions because we might not see this guy for another several months um, so like I had to be too, like really dialed into what was going on with whatever our Intel consumer was at the time. Um, that's so super smart though. That's to look at this and say like Ryan passed himself off as a CEO because that was not the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's super smart to, that sounds like a super interesting position in, in something that's like, uh, I, you know, sorely needed. I think, you know, like you said, you're sort of that editor, you're that a little bit of that go between between that that raw intelligence and what's disseminated down the track, so that's that's super interesting. 
It actually sounds like a money and time saving thing. You know, like what is the most pertinent information and how short of a package with the least amount of words to get the same effect. Can we yep. do this? You know, because time is of the essence, like yep. in most times. And you're kind of expected with the intel that comes back from assets over time, when you see the intel enough, you're vetting it. You know, like, can we corroborate sure. this? Have we seen this before? And one of one of our roles in that case is like we're a little bit more objective looking at a case as opposed to a case officer who becomes pretty close to the asset. Like you get really close and it's personal to you. And, and part of the reason they have us go through the same training and do the same work is so that we understand that when we're kind of on the other side of it. Um, huh. But there is that expectation that you, you're kind of trying to keep the CO in check as well when they may have some internal bias just because they really have connected with this asset. And I'll bring up a very quick story real quick. And that internal bias can lead to complacency, especially into a war zone. And Ryan, you know, the story with yeah. the female case officer that said, Hey, these guys now they're with me. And two or three of them actually had suicide vests on and like clacked off inside of an agency base in Afghanistan, in Kabul in 2014, I think was when it happened. So it's, Man, that's a crazy fucking world, man. Like, God. That that was the coast bombing in 2009, too, where, um, yep, bring this guy in, don't check him. Other people, like GRS guys, were like, nope, we need to check this guy. And they said, no, we're not going to. He came on because you just get tied to it. And and you just want to believe that this intel they're telling you is real. You know, so you, and anyway, it is, it's a bit of a check and balance, I would say. And within the agency, the CMO track is kind of looked at originally back in the day, like OSS days, guys were case officers and their spouses would be CMOs because guys didn't type anything. They just came back and said, hey, this is what happened. And their wife would type it up. So they kind of created <laughs> this track out of it. Um, and, and it's become like far more formalized and structured. And it's not like that today. Um, but that's if you're ribbing people. That's kind of what you would hear for CMOs, and we'd go back and like COs or knuckleheads. So when you graduated the farm, did you get a dress from someone? Yeah, so it was like full circle. <laughs> Not have happened to a better guy. I should have gotten that in that case. <laughs> well, well said, Patrick. Well that's said. Right. That's uh, as soon as you as soon as you said I know, that, I was man. like, that's the first thing that, that popped in my head. That is it. So could not have happened to a better guy. Um, but yeah. So and actually, one of the. Uh, more recent um, <laughs> heads of the CIA came out of that track, which is pretty rare and is now happening more often. So anyway, nice. small small sliver there, but I just uh, a caveat so people don't think I was passing myself off as something. Yeah, no. Well, so well, what we'll made sit. you what made you step away from that life? You know, you said you did eight years, and you know you're not you're not a hundred years old. You still got a lot of fight in you. What's what's going on? What what made you? Uh, decide to, to take on a new new course in life. I mean, you guys know this, like move in, whether it's the military or the government, you move every couple of years, it's tough. So yeah. I've got three sons and a wife who has like a real job that pays more than me, more than mine. Um, <laughs> that always and helps. also, I know very selfishly wanted a career and it's not easy to do when you're living in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
So my oldest son at the time was 11. He had moved 10 times in that 11 years. Wow. So, so he's surprisingly psychologically normal today, I have to say, <laughs> for what we've done to him. Um, but I think part of it was like, let's just get some stability. I've had my chance to go play GI Joe and do these great things. Uh, but my wife hasn't, and my kids don't have stability. So picked an area where we could land in the tech world where she could find work. And so could I. Um, so we consciously made this decision to step out. And as we made that, I was trying to figure out, Hey, there probably aren't a lot of jobs for people that did this type of work. Like you don't really need a lot of helicopter pilots or editors in this sense, like I was. So my last job at the agency, I worked at our center for cyber intelligence. So I was like immersed in cyber threat actors. And I picked up a couple cyber certifications along the way, like ethical hacking, pen testing, some scripting work in Python. Um, and I really enjoyed kind of that perspective. And it was funny because I was sitting down with one of these guys who went 160 at the dude I had flown with before. And I was like, hey, I'm going to this um, center for cyber intelligence doing cyber stuff. And he was like, why are you doing that? We got this counterterrorism fight. And it was probably, you know, maybe like 2015, 2016, you know, like you had the election, um, US presidential election that had been adjusted slightly and misinformation out, out of nowhere, and yeah. cyber threats in Ukraine. And I just felt like this was the future and a place where they kind of needed people who had seen these threat actors up close and personal. And it was a really good decision in hindsight because these big tech companies fight this all the time, just in, in a different yep. domain. And they, the only people who really know about these threat actors are folks coming out of the bureau, the agency, the military, um, running offensive ops, defensive ops. It's a different world and it's really, I don't know, it's been interesting. But the, the crux of the answer to your question, Patrick, was it was a family decision to, to kind of like find stability for everyone. Yep. Yeah, makes total sense. What year was this when you hung it up? I mean, when I finally exited was 2019. Wow, not long ago. No. So, I mean, I can relate to this, so can Patrick. So, I lump the mill, the State Department, the agency all kind of together. So, how has your transition been post your service to this country, man? Like how, obviously, you started this amazing podcast with uh combat story but how, you know what have you been doing for our listeners out there post this crazy ride of your life yeah i mean that's how i stay connected to the stuff that matters you know and i i interview some intel folks but mainly it's military um and even you guys like how would i have ever met you guys without doing something like this so i don't know if i would have the same outlook if i wasn't doing this for the past few years and i started that when I was at the agency, I got approval to interview people, but not release anything until I was out. So I started interviewing people pre-COVID. And oh, my, wow. first, my first meeting was with this guy, Elliot Ackerman, who's a Marine, uh, Silver Star recipient, author, just great guy, MARSOC and PMOO. Great dude. Um, and our first meeting was in a hotel room in DC that felt like an asset meeting for both of us. It was the weirdest <laughs> experience. I was so unprepared for this. Brought like little snacks, like I was running an asset meeting. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was super did you, did you, uh, you like? Did you ask him, hey, did you run an SDR before Pearl, this? Yeah, like, hey, you? who knows you're here? Um, <laughs> you have any threat information? 
but he was he was a platoon leader in Fallujah, and I was hooked. Like just talking to him about going from forty guys to twenty six combat effective Marines in twenty four hours, like blew my mind. God That's exactly with my age. You know, like he was in Fallujah just while I was in flight school. Like he had a different path, but to me, I, I was like I could do this every day and just be super interested in what I'm hearing. So I, to your point, like I had a terrible transition when I left the army cause I left all that behind. And now I made a really concerted effort to stay connected. So yeah, it's been, it's been great because of that. Um, because of guys like you, uh, and talking to y'all. Yeah, well, for those who have, if for, for those who are listening to the Savage Actual podcast right now, and if you guys haven't listened to Ryan on combat story, you absolutely have to. Um, I think before Jason and I ever even started on YouTube, I had listened to a couple of your your podcasts, or, uh, you know, on YouTube, and they're super interesting. And your guests are always super interesting, and the format was just it, it's it's addicting to listen to these guys' stories, and you have a huge breadth of of guests on there. So definitely, if uh, you're listening to this podcast and you want to find something else that's super interesting and add to your your podcast inventory definitely check out combat combat story it's well worth it yeah and we got we got jason signed up to do a uh, we're doing a documentary as well with this so kind of reinvesting back into the into the podcast trying to share some of some of the experiences the way we do on the podcast but from a slightly different perspective where i'd be curious if you guys hear this too with your interviews but a lot of the guys I've talked to have really strained relationships with family who just have no idea really what they did downrange. They don't brag about it. They rarely talk about it. Uh, family members don't really know what they experienced and maybe they see a movie one, now and again and all they can do is imagine. And I just want to give people more context for the kid who's out there or the spouse who's like, I just don't know who this person is anymore like understanding what happens when you're actually downrange. Cause I think only the people we serve with really see that other side of us when we're that, when we're down there. So I want to share a little bit more of that. So Jason, you're one of the, one of the folks you brought on. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of you sharing more time with us for that. So we got that coming out later this year. That's yeah, awesome. That was good. And that's, good. that's, I would say that was a good experience, man. And uh, quite jealous of your, uh, your brother's humble abode. In Tampa, <laughs> what a beautiful. He has home, talked man. about that. He has talked about your brother more times than right. I can count. It's so hilarious. I'm like, I'm like, all right, I got, I got to meet this guy at some point. So for our listeners out there, Ryan's <laughs> what little I know. Ryan has a really cool, unique family, and especially from the mill side. And that brother specifically, I thought you said he was a ranger, correct? Yeah, so you Army Rangers, so you got one ground guy out of all these air boys, and he sold arms to like Russia or something, or <laughs> ammunition or something. Yeah, so we got <laughs> just a month ago, we released an interview with him. It's the first time I've interviewed him just about what he did. So he was pre 9 11, so he didn't, he didn't deploy post 9 11, but he spent a lot of time downrange. So if, if people have seen like, I think it's War Dogs. Um, basically, he was a contractor with this company that he ran, and they were the only American company licensed to work directly with the Russian government to procure 
helicopter components and helicopters <laughs> and ammo and sell it to the Afghan army through U.S. government contracts um, from like 2008 until a few years back when he sold it. And he was wow. at the right place at the right time and took a, no kidding, like took a big risk. It wasn't, he just happened into it. Like he was at a cush job at General Dynamics in the same field. And he and a couple army guys were like, hey, we see an opportunity here. Let's take it. And, you know, deliberate, but very risky, figured it out, won their first contract. And in the end, they were part of a $10 billion contract that they won alongside Lockheed, like Lido's major organizations. Wow. Yes, yes. yes that he Lido's. just put together. Um, but yeah, like he was over in Afghanistan. He was doing meetings in Moscow. He had a facility in Crimea when the attacks happened there. <laughs> just, yeah, he'll have a book one day, I am certain, with some crazy shit that went on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we're getting closer to the end, man. And, you know, you, you've been a free man now for four years doing something you're truly <laughs> passionate about on your own accord. And you know, the, you're the you're the captain of your, of your path now, you know, done with the government for the most part. You know, in, in recollection, dude, we got to hear a couple funny stories, man. So <laughs> anything from Army boot camp to uh, anything, man, is there anything hilarious that comes to mind at, at all? Embarrassing to yourself to... You know, without getting yourself in trouble, you know, but anything. Yeah, a few come to mind. When when I was in flight school, I was pretty like nose to the grindstone. I need to be at the top of my class so I can like get the aircraft that I want. And I was in a flight school class with 30 other commissioned officers. So there were 30 of us. I was the only one from ROTC. All the rest were from West Point. Oh, damn. Oh, wow. So I ended up getting super close with them, but they had just left four years of not a normal college experience, like great college, but not the one that I had. Like they weren't partying the nights that I was. And, and this is kind of a stereotype, but I definitely saw this. They, they get together in like groups of six. They go buy a big house off base. They party all the time their first year out of college. Right, because they've been kind of pent up for four years. And now they got money, <laughs> they're on their own, they're all single. And a couple things happened with that where I would never go out to party. We were in the middle of nowhere in Alabama. I was like, I've been partying up in DC. I got this, I'm good. And one night this good buddy of mine called me. He's like, Hey dude, we're studying for our instrument check for check ride and uh, we got that test tomorrow. Come on over. We're all we're all studying. So I'm like, All right, I'll come over. They had the biggest rager going on. It was the only way they knew they could get Ryan like out of his damn apartment. Just, hey, come study with us. <laughs> it was like, oh, of course. Of course I fell for this. And like, you dumbass. <laughs> similarly, first time my wife came to visit, or you know, I was dating her at the time, but I, I had known her, like I met her in high school. So like she had known me for a long time. I bring her up to flight school. We go over to this party that these guys are throwing. We literally get out of the car. This dude, who is one of the smartest like aerospace engineer, like love this guy. He comes running around the corner wearing nothing but a sombrero, <laughs> nothing on, yelling, "Come on in, Ryan!" We go in. Like to this day, my wife is like, "I didn't know guys could make different 
um, things with their private parts. He's like, check out the bird feeder. That's, that's what I call this thing. Never heard of this in my life. I don't know what goes on at West Point. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of a, a bit of an indoctrination for my wife to, this is what you're about to experience once we're all lieutenants at a base somewhere. Oh my God. Um, and then in, in combat, something funny happened to me that kind of brought me back full circle to Pakistan where we were supporting a, an ODA team that had pinned down an enemy like right on the border, the Afghan-Pakistan border. And they were probably an hour from our base. So we were somewhere else. We got called in to help them out. It was the middle of the night, all dark. And in route, they're giving us an update on what to expect. They got the enemy pinned down, but they're still like fighting. They don't want to close too close with this. So they want to take this building out with the hellfire. So they kind of walk us onto the target. This building was, it had to have been like, 200 meters from the border with Pakistan. So anything for us on the border is sensitive. Like we can't cross the border. We've got on our, on our map, we've got like an outline of the border. We can see when our aircraft is over it. So it's very easy. Wow. to. So the only way we could take a shot at this building because of, of where it was sitting was we had to go perpendicular to the border. So we're flying directly at Pakistan, basically. And the ground unit is offset like 45 degrees. They're talking us onto the target. We've got it. So we get set to take the shot. We come in and I'm going to take the shot. So I'm in the front seat. I'm on the, I'm on the, uh, the tads. I've got the target. We've lased it. So we've got the laser on it. I'm cleared. I pull the trigger on the hellfire. And usually it takes a second or two for a hellfire to leave the rail. Nothing happens. It doesn't leave. Sometimes there's an error message that you see. So we get this error message, nothing happens. So we turn around and go outbound and we tell the ground force, hey, we got to reset for another shot. We're like, fine, sounds good. So on our outbound leg, we're looking at this and the computer, each Hellfire has its own computer on board in the, in the Hellfire. And our computer is telling us that there's this error message that we've never seen. So we're like, what do we do? Let's just turn the hellfire off and turn it back on. Like that works for our computers around the fob. Let's just do that. <laughs> Sounds good. Like with this multi-thousand dollar piece of equipment. So we turn it off, turn it back on. Hellfire spins up, looks good. So we come back around for another shot. We're cleared in. I'm on the target. I'm lazing it. Cleared to shoot. I pull the trigger. Wait a couple seconds. Nothing happens. And I'm like, shit, I don't know what's going on. Two seconds later, the hellfire comes off the rail. It should not do this. It comes off <laughs> and it goes straight into the air and we never see it come down. Oh my God. I don't know if this thing went into orbit. On the tape, our back seat, my backseater goes, sir, I think you just launched a missile into India. And I was like, oh my God. Holy shit. This is like an international incident waiting to happen. So, and everything's on tape. Everything we do is, is recorded. So we never see this thing come down. doesn't land anywhere we can see. And we've got thermal now. So like it's very easy to see something like this, as hot as it is in the sky. We never see it again. We come back around. We engage with our, with our other missiles. Take this building out. It's fine. We go home. We have to report it. Nobody has tried to arrest me to this day. So I feel like we're in the clear. But that one was a... 
oh my god of all oh, the countries dear. i can get involved in it's going to be pakistan like where it all started and like people threaten me they're going to think i took yeah. this out on them personally but i felt kind of good about watching that thing in pakistan so that's yeah. insane what's the range <laughs> what's what's the range of that thing dude like how long i was is it just going wondering the same thing I mean, it, it'll go seven kilometers. I mean, it's it'll go pretty damn far, but it, and it, it's supposed to go up in the air and then track, find the find the laser, and then come come down pretty steep onto the target. So it's not unusual the way it happened, but that thing was gone, man. We got to, <laughs> and we reviewed it in the tape. We did everything we were supposed to. We were lased for the right. There are certain things that could go wrong. Like when we reviewed it, everything was right, and that thing just took off. So, wow yeah that's awesome i'm glad that doesn't just happen to us dirty ground guys man that's uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's crazy so did you ever did you ever ask anybody on the ground hey did you guys see where that first missile went no one of the things that sucks about the aviation community we were in was we would never see that ground unit again ever yeah, uh, yeah. oftentimes we'd support them and never see them again yeah um, <laughs> so yeah i never got to ask them that one of the cool things that happened because we never saw the ground guys, we had a woman in our unit and this one time a guy was coming out on R and R and they had to pass through Salerno and he came in and he's like, I just want to meet this woman that I heard on the radio above us. One time she put down all this fire and saved our ass. She sounded so hot. Can I please meet her? And she was like out on an op that day. And so to this day, I'm sure this guy just thinks of this, like the sexiest woman you can imagine up in the cockpit, just raining fire down on targets for him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's not what every, every guy pictures though. You know, you're like, Dude, you don't, I've you just, a- I've heard so many stories of guys talk about like chicken bombers or fighter aircraft. And they're like, oh my God, she sounds so incredibly hot. You're like, come on. Well, dude, I have a positive note to this story because it actually happened. Leave it to a Marine Raider. We we made two B-2 bombers, like freaking, excuse me, B-1s, uh, go Winchester, man. And it was it was over the course of two days. It was a two-day tick. And like multiple platforms go Winchester, dude. It was, a, it was a gnarly ass fight. Anyways, one of the pilots, female, to this badass aircraft potentially from my home state in kansas mcconnell air force base uh <laughs> her call sign was bone 22 and i remember hearing her voice we were all monitoring the jtac com we call it, z wayne was my buddy's name i won't say the, the entire last name but his nickname was z wayne found out who she was actually went out on a, <laughs> went on a went on a date with this woman man so we heard her voice and especially the one female, because there's no females hardly, especially in the Marine Corps realm, especially in combat. We all heard her voice, and it was just like, uh, man, this is like this angel. You know, she's <laughs> crushing. It's like the death angel, man. But it's yep. the voice is so sweet. It's like almost tucking you in on a pillow and a nice blanket. <laughs> you know, and she had the most amazing voice as well. And he actually did go on a date with, and actually got to meet her. So I don't know anything awesome. else. But it really happened, and uh, I wish I could hear more. We need to find that guy and actually interview him too. So that's great. That's that's, that's crazy. For our fans out there, guys, you know, wrap it up, man. Like, how do we, you know, for our fans that don't know anything about you and they do now, but like, how do they get a hold of you, man? How do they find you? How do they find your your social outlets? Um, what's the best avenue? Yeah, websites, all that. Yep, Combat Story on YouTube. 
um, at combat story on Instagram and kind of the, the big episode we had that really broke us out. We interviewed a guy named, uh, John Trek McPhee and his former Delta <laughs> operator. He's character for whatever reason, that thing just blew up and it, not for whatever reason. I mean, the guy is a character and he's hilarious. We've, we've interviewed him a few times. So if you're starting somewhere, a lot of people start there, but I, I would start with you two as well. Um, had Jason on. We did a, a two-part series with you, Jason, just to, to get the whole story there. Um, actually, one of the YouTube shorts with you, Jason, is the, the biggest one we've had. Uh, you just told a very short story about walking up on some Taliban, uh, getting the drop on them. I can still remember the way you told it. Like For whatever reason, it struck a chord with a ton of people. Millions of people have listened to that. Huh. Um, so that's there's, awesome. there's a lot of places to start, but those are ones that people uh, kind of go to first. Crazy. So times, if you're listening man. to this, make sure you uh, check out the description of the podcast. I'll have just a link. You can go right from the description into and go to that link and click on it for the Combat Story podcast, the Instagram and, and the website. I'll have all that on the description. So thanks. Thanks for uh, having me on, guys. I know you you all know some some pipe hitters. So it's pretty cool to, to just be on here and, and talking with you guys about this and nothing but, um, great luck to both of you and Savage Actual. Thanks brother. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft and military subjects. Basically they drink a lot of beer talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.